2: Listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David
1: Ortiz.
2: Featuring Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood.
1: Sale winds. He fires. Swing and a miss. Back play. It's over. The Red Sox have. Welcome back to the Red Sea Podcast. This is your host Jake Devereaux. Today I'm joined by Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood of Over the Monster for episode 298 of the show. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing tonight? Doing great, Jake. Where are you coming to us from, Keaton? coming to you live from Memphis? well that's not right i'm coming to you
2: delayed because you're listening to this the next day from memphis
1: okay where i uh, forgot to pack my mic all right are you uh are you gonna visit graceland while you're there no what is that uh elvis's thing yeah elvis's uh, his house <laughs> i guess i don't know i haven't been I there I, I have vault. been to memphis but are you gonna go down to beale street and get hammered no,
2: I guess I should be more specific. I'm not actually in Memphis. That's just where I flew in. Oh, uh, geez, I'm in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Yeah. Oh. You're oh, not but even that's... in the same state? It's not even close. <laughs> it, like There's like Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee are all within like six seconds of each other where I'm at. So, yeah. No, but there are, yeah, the the office. You're coming to, to us
0: delayed from Mississippi. <laughs> is
2: what you should have
1: said. Yeah. yeah, I just lied about everything. But uh, Jake had to call me out on it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, no more specific geography questions, Bob. I'm assuming you're you're where you normally are?
0: Yeah, I'm in Nova Scotia.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Um, all right. So on this show, we've got a lot uh, that we're going to talk about. First of all, we're going to start off by kind of honoring Tim Wakefield a little bit and talking about what he meant to us. Um, and then we're going to get into exploring What the last place Red Sox should do about uh, their pitching this year, and go through the pitching staff, what we think they should do with the rotation and the bullpen before we get you guys out of here with some listener questions. So let's go ahead and start it off. Um, You know, Tim Wakefield sadly passed away uh, at the age of 57 after a battle with brain cancer. you know, a, a lot of stuff here to to say about Wakefield. Um, there's been a lot of great articles written about him uh, in the Boston Globe, um, on the Athletic. You know, lots of different sites have been honoring him recently. Um, but a few numbers that I just wanted to call out before we get into our favorite memories about Tim Wakefield. Um, he had a 19-year career in the Major Leagues, 17 of those with the Red Sox um, from '95 to 2011. His debut was May 27, 1995. He allowed one run over seven innings against the Angels. And his last start was September twenty fifth, 2011 against the Yankees. Um, he was 49. That's the number that he wore. Uh, he wore that number because of other knuckleballers uh, who wore that. Um, and He's the longest tenured pitcher in Red Sox history, 17 seasons. Only Yastrzemski, Evans, and Ted Williams played more seasons here. And he led the team uh, all-time team records in starts, 430 and 3,006 innings. Uh, he was second in appearances in strikeouts as well. Um, and trails Roger Clemens and Cy Young in victories with 186. So uh, just quite the resume there. Um, But let's go ahead and start with you, Bob. What's your favorite Tim Wakefield memory?
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a few, I guess. Part of what I want to talk about was him on the field and then part off the field. Um, You know, I just I've watched thousands of Red Sox games in my life at this point. And I, you know, the one player who was on my TV pitching more than anyone in my life was Tim Wakefield. He was just a mainstay for two decades and bridged the gap between so many different versions of the Red Sox. Um, You know, him arriving in 1995, that was kind of an outlier team, but he just absolutely took that season over when he first got here. And, in his first 17 starts, he went 14-1 and one with a 165 ERA and six complete games. And I just remember being 10, 11 years old at the time and thinking, you know, that, that this guy is going to win the Cy Young as someone who was in the minor leagues to start the season. And, you know, all the other kids in Little League that you'd throw and practice your knuckleball with was it just had such an influence on um, people growing up watching him on television the first every five days Um, and just kind of going from there you know he was a closer for part of 1999 a team that made the ALCS in 2003 you know no one was really mad he was not uh, to blame for giving up the home run to Aaron Boone he'd taken the ball in every scenario possible for nine seasons at that point and you know just didn't complain starter reliever whatever it was and when he did get the title in 2004 I think people were as happy for him as anyone else on that team at that point. Um, after being on so many kind of devastating lost teams that they had had for the decade before, and he was such a big part of it. I mean, he wore it in Game Three, and people remember that that he kind of took one for the team. But then in Game Five, he pitched three innings and extra innings and got the win in fourteen, and um, they kept Veritek in, and he couldn't catch his knuckleball, and they had guys on third the whole time, and it was a Hard tack. It wasn't his fault because Mirabelli normally caught him. um, But, you know, he was there for that World Series. He was there for the 2007 World Series. And around through the end of the Tito era, it was just – it spanned such a long time of my life. Um, And just off the field, everything that you heard, the charitable work that he did. and He lived in the suburbs of Boston. He had kids that went to baseball camps that that I was coaching when I was in, in college and in my 20s and all of that raised a family here, just became such a big part of the city. Um, so, yeah, I mean, cancer sucks. It's absolutely just a uh, really heartbreaking story for somebody that, you know, then was on the pre- and post-game show so often, you know, and started doing some games this year as well. It's just, you know, they in our lives for the whole time, and it's a really sad story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think all that's very well said, and I think one of the things that stands out to me is just that, you know, once this news broke um, in, in not the way that he wanted it to break, he um, only really had three days to process it before he was gone. Um, and and I feel like he just deserved more. He deserved better. Um, and he meant a lot to so many people. And so many people didn't get the chance to kind of, you know, make peace sure. with that. So it's, it's very very tough situation Keaton let's go to you how do you uh how do you feel about this situation with Wakefield and how are you going to remember him
2: yeah I think um similar to Bob you know I have memories of him on the field and and off the field and I think that you know it speaks to the longevity that I think you know I've seen other people bring this up too but for for people that like myself that um You know, didn't go to a lot of games as a kid. Um, The few that I did go to, I feel like Wakefield was always the pitcher there. And part of that is the durability of just the length of his career with Red Sox. But he was always available. And Bob, you know, laid out whatever situation Red Sox, you know, would turn to him, hand him the ball as starter, um, closer um, kind of towards the end there. It also seemed like uh, everybody's off day was Wakefield day and they were, were kind of just, you know, burning lineups for him, but he he didn't really care and would go out there and, and just give it his all anyway. Um, everybody just has memories of being at Fenway with Wakefield on the mound. That's, that was just being a fan of the Red Sox in, you know, the, the '90s and the, the 2000s, and, and even you know, being my, I think probably one of my favorite things is playing little league in the late '90s and early 2000s in New England. There was really two things everybody did to try and like feel like a big leaguer um, on the in the little league fields, and one of them was stepping in the box. And adjusted your batting gloves thirty-five times, like Nomar, and the other was trying to throw a knuckleball, like Wakefield. Yep, we all, we all did that, and it's like those those kinds of players have such a big impact on us as kids for how we play the game and not and watch the game and just really experience it and have such a big impact on. I mean, our just really our whole relationship with baseball, and you know, Bob laid out we were all thrilled just the fact that the Red Sox ended the eighty six year curse in two thousand four, but there's, you know, many different layers of winning a championship and one of them I think everybody was just thrilled with the fact that Wakefield was able to say basically able, you know, check that career milestone off that there's a lot of guys that work hard in the sport and, and very few of them feel like that, um, you know, they get the ultimate reward for the sacrifice and uh, especially in that fashion and and having a great impact and be able to the next season after having given up the Boone home run, turn it around like that. It was, it's just, it's an amazing moment to see and everybody is happy for uh, the team and Wakefield in general. And it's just, it was one of those awesome moments for just an entire region and a community um, to be able to share that together, and that's, I think, one of the reasons to why um, you know he stuck around and did all of the the excess charity work with the um, New England area afterwards, and did the pregame show and all that stuff. But there's certainly an entire generation of knuckleballers that grew up in New England just because of his presence here on the team. So that I think that is probably one of my favorite memories of him.
1: Yeah you guys did a really good job with kind of remembering all those things that are so important about Wakefield but you know a couple of things I'll add is just I feel the same way as uh, you do Keaton that I felt like every time I went to a game when I was a kid um, it was Wakefield on the mound. You know, I, I don't know whether or not yeah. that's just luck or, or whatever, but I I saw a lot of Wakefield yeah. starts. Um, he was just always out there. And you knew within the first couple innings whether or not the the knuckler was dancing or whether or not it was going to be a, a short outing for Wakefield. You know, you, ca- you could always tell uh, pretty early in the game. Um, but, you know, I do think back to that 2003 uh, ALCS a lot, um, in the Aaron Boone hit and just like how devastated, um, Tim Wakefield looked at the podium after that. And, um, you know, I-, I think that he very much thought that he could be, you know, one of those ignominious names in Red Sox history after that. And for them to come back and win, like you said, the next year, um, and him to be such a key part of that was just so huge for him to, um, you know, solidify himself as, as a Red Sox legend. Not that he already wasn't at that point, but, you know, just not to have the stink of 2003 on him anymore was just huge. Um, and he, bl-
0: he blamed himself for a lot of that. And it was just, I mean, yeah, he was alone time. doing that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's just the type of guy that he was. He was just always so accountable, always team first. Um, you know, always willing to to put the spikes on and get out there on the mound if if the team needed it, and um, and I think that he the team recognized that uh, he had that four and a half million dollar contract that was basically up to him every year as long as he wanted to pitch, uh, they would honor that contract, um, which is just something that you don't ever hear anymore um, in this game. So, and all the work that he did with the Jimmy Fund was just sensational um you know it's it's rare to have a guy that plays nearly 20 years in the majors and really there are no negative stories about tim wakefield and i think that that just kind of says it all right there
0: absolutely i mean and, and you guys talking about being to so many of those starts he started 463 games in his career 430 of those were in boston so you know, if you went to even a few games, there was a good chance that you were going to see him pitch, because, uh, I mean, you throw the knuckleball. He wasn't getting Tommy John surgery. He was, <laughs> he was out there every fifth day for seventeen seasons here. So.
1: You know um, what I loved about those those starts, though, whenever he would throw in that fastball just randomly to catch somebody off guard, <laughs> seventy four. So funny, yeah, it was you know the oh here comes the heater you know it's just it and then he so had funny. a big
0: like 12 to 6 curveball that he would break out like two percent of the time you <laughs> yeah. know
1: yeah yeah he was a hell of a pitcher um yeah. and somebody who um you know we, we don't see much of those i think about like r.a Dickey is the last uh real knuckler who had success like that but you know it's a it's a it's a special part of the game. The other thing that I just want to bring up before we close the book on this is just um, I meant to bring it up at the beginning, but one of my biggest uh, memories of the Red Sox at all is just the flying Mirabelli in and trading back for Mirabelli just so he could be, you know, <laughs> the police the, escort the, the catcher and the police escort. That whole thing was just so funny to me. Yeah. Um, how specialized, and I actually was working at a um, a country club in college where Mirabelli would come into sometimes. So you know, like I always got to like see him there too. So i I just always think of uh, Wakefield and his personal catcher and and Doug Mirabelli and all that stuff. So it's just a little bit special.
2: I always I loved Mirabelli for that, but also. You know, being in Maine, when the Red Sox would win the World Series, um, and they would do the the mini trophy tour, um, Red Sox would always send a, a couple of players. But um, <laughs> naturally, it's like the season's over; guys want to leave, and so the guys that would end up coming to Maine, uh, you know, in the winter for a rally, um, usually weren't you know in the top half of the roster. <laughs> um, but we got Mirabelli. He was there for that rally up in Portland in 2004. So I uh, I always appreciate him for that. Nice. I was trying
0: to look up who the catcher was that just couldn't handle it. It was Veritech, was, wasn't it? Uh, it was Veritech, and then it was uh, Javi Lopez, oh, the old Braves yeah. guy, was on that team that year. yep um, Yeah, I mean, no, you're right. They did try to utilize Veritech more with that. And it just, it wasn't working. They needed to yeah. call in the emergency.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so specific. But, um, well, you know, in another way, I think it's worth mentioning, um, not related to Wakefield, but just, well, a, a little bit related to Wakefield, that Tito has retired from the game as well after a long and storied career. Obviously, we think about his success that he had here with the Red Sox and breaking the curse and, you know, being the manager of of uh, a lot of those teams that Wakefield was on, but also a lot of seasons in Cleveland and an illustrious baseball career of his own as a player as well. So um, just wanted to kind of celebrate Tito a little bit and see if either of you guys had any thoughts on on Tito, maybe his ice cream habits or, you know, him attacking Orsillo or, you know, any any memories that you guys want to mention about Tito. Um, maybe him in Pedroya. I don't That's... know. There's just so much.
2: That was mine. So, I one of my favorite memories. First off, I'm thrilled that he's retired. The man has had like a, a, like a decade of health scares. Yeah. And I'm just thrilled that he finally gets to relax. <laughs> um. But the his relationship with Pedroia was so hilarious. And I distinctly remember uh, Nesson doing this like uh, behind the scenes of all of like the weird commercial shoots that the team was doing one year. I don't remember what season it was, but they were doing like a Duncan commercial and it was Pedroia and Francona and Pedroia kept messing up his line and Francona just kept teasing him every single time he'd mess it up. And you know Pedroia, being the very talkative, competitive man that he is, he'd be getting, like, really frustrated with himself. that Like, he'd mess up, like, a simple line. And, like, he'd be really trying hard to get it right. And he'd, like, slightly mess it up. And then Francona would just tease him about it. And he'd get even more pissed off. And then get it wrong again. And he'd tease him about it and get more pissed off. And it was just a never-ending cycle of, like, him never being able to get this line right. And Francona just, just absolutely taking in the glory of him messing it up (laughs) it was just a hilarious little behind the scene thing there
0: he he, uh yeah sorry go ahead jake
1: i was just gonna say like that was his sort of his superpower right was like tito could relate to anybody um and he just had that sense of like sure he was a good baseball manager and he knew the game back and forwards and he always made really good in-game moves and all that stuff. But, like, the other thing was he just never grew up, you know? Like, even at the age that he is now, he still acts like a little kid all the time. And I think that that's what made him so perfect, especially for that 2004 team. And I don't think anybody else could have been the manager during that comeback against the Yankees. I think it had to be Tito.
0: Yeah, he handled just all of it so well. I... He he got everybody, too. I mean, I I think of when the Indians were hosting the, the Tampa Rays when Kevin Cash had first become the manager there. And Francona had them put uh, something up on the Jumbotron at the beginning of the game, and I found the, the screenshot. It said, how bad is Kevin Cash at the plate? Cash's career batting stats, 183, 248, 278. In the history of Major League Baseball, Kevin Cash has the fifth worst OPS plus of all time. So he welcomed (laughs) Kevin Cash by posting his career stats on the Jumbotron during the game.
1: (laughs) That's incredible. To
0: say that he was one of the five worst hitters in the history of baseball. (laughs) And he had said in the pregame that, you know, I I have a little something to welcome Kevin to the stadium and acted like he was doing some sort of nice gesture and then gets him with that, right? And then any time that he knew the camera was on him, and Orsillo was announcing, like, and he was in the other dugout, he'd throw up a middle finger, but he'd pretend to be, like, scratching his face or something like that. <laughs> I mean, he was just messing with people constantly and just, like, never broke stride and pretended that, oh, no, that wasn't me. You know, like you said, he's a child.
1: Yeah. But in the best possible way.
0: Right. Oh, he was great. I, and always had the best ejections. Like, if he was going to go, he was going to get his money's worth. <laughs> and he was just going to get in your face and let you have it. You know, he might do it two or three times a year, but just always got his money's worth.
1: Absolutely. All right. Any other thoughts uh, on these guys before we we move on? Um, uh, thankfully, Tito is, is, is still with us, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of him in, in the future. Um, I'm sure that we, what we Tito need him on does TV. To, to relax is, like, watch baseball. like. I mean, there's no way this guy's getting away from the game <laughs> in any meaningful way. But um, that's that's a good thing for all of us. So transitioning to the Red Sox here, and um, the the team that's that's on the field that has just ended uh, being on the field. Red Sox finished with a record of 78 in 84, um, last place in the AL East. Um, this is below what any of us expected or predicted. Um, For this team and one of the biggest reasons why uh, this team underperformed, uh, you know, was the starting pitching. Um, Fourth fewest innings from the starting pitchers in all of baseball. Uh, Very reliant on the bullpen. Not only a a volume problem with the starting pitching this year, but also a quality problem. Um, Just kind of a lot of things going wrong. The, The bullpen obviously much improved. Uh, but was asked to carry too much of the load this year. So what what we're going to do is go through SP1, SP2, SP3, SP4, SP5, and then the bullpen and kind of talk about what they have there and what they need to do at those positions. But before before we do that, um, do either of you guys have any sort of high-level thoughts about the pitching this year that you want to share before we get right into The positions themselves
2: i think my general thoughts on the starting pitching are just a very elongated fart noise sound (laughs) effects
1: that seems about right six month
0: long fart oh it was so awful it was just i don't want us to forget that cory kluber was the opening day starter (laughs) <laughs> and how terrible he was in that first game, and second game, and third game, and his 704 ERA, and the the 37 year old Corey Kluber was who they said we're gonna bring in to just fortify this pitching staff this year to to be a you know a leader and a um, you know front of the rotation guy because they had lo- lost out on everybody else. Um. I heard someone say earlier that they didn't have a pitcher qualify for the ERA title, which means not one guy went 162 innings. And the only one that even came close was Brian Bayo throwing 157. So if he had one more start, he would have qualified. Um, We've talked about it ad nauseum, just how uh, the pitchers did not go deep into games, how they were not available the three-man rotation, how much stress that put on the bullpen and the trickle-down effect. They didn't prioritize in the off-season. They had a bunch of names, a bunch of injury-prone, volatile names that failed across the board. You know, you can say that there was some progress from Bayo and some progress from uh, Cutter Crawford. And other than that, I mean, you know, it's, it's good that they made progression's in their development and Bayo's still 24 and I have high hopes for him but geez I mean what an, an abomination for six months in every way possible
2: speaking of opening day starters can we just talk about <laughs> can we just talk about how Alex Cora has already named Chris Sale the st- opening day starter for 2024 and did so with like four games left in the 2023 <laughs> season
1: He's putting a lot of faith in him not to, like, slip in the shower or, like, you know, wipe out walking his dog or whatever else can happen to Chris Sale with that. There was, like, that quote was out
0: there, but then there was another one that said he didn't really directly say that. He was just implying that if Sale is healthy at the beginning of the year, that, you know, he's hoping that he throws, like, that wasn't a direct quote, but someone tweeted it as fact. So it was very confusing to me, but I didn't go back and watch the video or anything. But yeah, why was that necessary right now to even talk know. about?
1: Let's just say that who starts opening day doesn't really matter. What matters is that they address this problem. And I think that, you know, you guys outlined how how horrible the starting pitching was in particular. Um, and last week, we recapped kind of what we think they're going to do with the lineup. And one of the things that I saw uh, was that a couple people were a little critical that we weren't going to change a whole lot uh, in the lineup. But the reason why is because all of us want to spend all of the money that this team has on the starting pitching side of things, because really the lineup's not that bad. So let's go ahead and get right into the starting pitching Um, at SP one. They currently do not have a true SP1 on this roster. Chris Sale is no longer that guy, um, mostly because of durability concerns and availability. Um, so I think that they need to go out and spend, spend, spend. And the guy who I would target to be the SP1 for this team next year is Yoshinobu Yamamoto, uh, arguably the best free agent pitcher. He's going to be 25 um, you know, heading into being posted by his NPB club. Um, And here are his stats for the year in Japan. Uh, He went 15-6 and with a 126 ERA and a 0.892 whip over 157 innings. Um, And he had 158 strikeouts to go along with that. And uh, over seven seasons in the NPB, He's got a 1.83 ERA uh, across that time span. So pretty damn good. Uh, we saw him in the, um, in the World Baseball Classic. He looked really good there. Bob Nightingale is predicting $160 million contracts. Um, at least I think that he gets close to 200 with him being sort of one of the top guys on this market. Um, Let's start with you here, Bob. What do you think about Yamamoto as the top free agent target, and do you think that that should be the guy the Red Sox go after hard?
0: Yes, I do. I mean, there's kind of two points here. Um, I don't care that much who the ace that they go after is, as long as it is that. Um, If they go after Yamamoto and they go after... Aaron Nola, who I know we're going to talk about as well. And one of them signs here, I'm going to be ecstatic. Um, I do not, they, they have to be aggressive on a front line, actual ace starting pitcher. And if Yamamoto is that name, I mean, you outlined all the stats. Uh, he's at a perfect age. He'll be 25 to come in and give a long-term contract to. That's fine. That sounds good to me. Let's go with it. Uh, we'll talk about SP2 as well. They're going to need two pitchers that they're going to have to throw significant money at, but one of them has to be a surefire ace. Yamamoto is that. Um, So, yeah, I have no gripes with anything that you said there, but it has to be something. It can't be from the second or the third tier. It's got to be
2: from the first tier. you say saying you don't want them to bust out the he's the ace t-shirts again for another year?
0: Or have seven or eight different pitchers that you're in on but aren't willing to go the extra year or the extra $10 million. No. That, that's We're, all no. I'm saying is that you got to come out of the <laughs> gate firing for one of these guys and then work off of that. It's going to be the first thing that you do in the off season and then fit the puzzle pieces, not start fitting the minor puzzle pieces and then hope that you're going to sign a significant free agent later. And that's what they've done the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, we're done being the interest kings here. Right. Uh, that's, yeah. That, that And whole... we know
0: that they can go over the, the taxes here. You know, they've reset. Go nuts.
1: Well, so that's a, the point I want to make before we get really into this is that, you know, by a lot of websites, calculations, I've been looking at f- fangraphs, I've been looking at COTS uh, contracts and a few other places. The Red Sox currently have about one hundred thirty six hundred thirty seven million committed. Uh, to the roster for 2024 and they've got a ton of these guys who are pre-arbitration and the first CBT level for uh, this past year was 233 so that's likely to go up a little bit so the Red Sox have a ton of money to work with here so I guess my question to you Keaton is with them having all this money to work with you know, is there any hesitation that you have at all about giving 30 million plus per year to a guy in Yamamoto who is, you know, unproven at the major league level, but we've seen kind of what other guys with his qualifications have done when they've come over here. So any hesitation there?
2: No. Um, as you pointed out, guys, similar, uh, Stuff have had success here. Um, obviously, his stuff has been extremely elite. He's a 25 year old. It's not not very often that you get to sign a a young a 25 year old to a free agent contract. Um, just given the state of Major League Baseball's contract, and also um, you know obviously there's going to be a bit of transition, but generally the pitchers tend to translate a bit better than the hitters and uh, and their adjustments. So. I wouldn't hesitate at all. I would love it immediately. Give it to him.
1: Before we move on to SP2, do either of you have a different target for SP1, or are we all in agreement that Yamamoto's the guy that we need at SP1?
2: I just don't know if there's another talent potential like that out there. Um. I mean, I mean, especially just at that age, I just don't think, really. There's you'd have to make a trade at that point, and teams that have a you know 25 year old with his stuff aren't really gonna they're not gonna trade, him. <laughs> just flat out they're not gonna trade. Him. So, so yeah, uh, if you have a chance to sign that guy and and not give up any other pieces of your roster, you got to do it.
0: I think he should be the top target. I think that Nola should be second. Um, what do you guys think about Blake Snell?
1: So that's an interesting one. Snell is going to absolutely run away with the NL Cy Young this year. But this is a guy that I want absolutely nothing to do with for the Red Sox. Um, and, and there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, he's in his age 30 season uh, right now. And this is the only the second time in his career that he'll have reached 180 innings pitched. Um, so to me, I I don't want anything to do with the risk that is going to be a thirty-one-year-old Blake Snell. You know, or one hundred
0: thirty innings, for that matter.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's crazy how bad the durability has been for him. The talent is tantalizing, but like you can't tell me that if this is what you got from Blake Snell in his twenties, that he's worth investing in in his thirties.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I like. The talent, and um, he was he was a guy that actually wanted the Red Sox to target at the trade deadline a year ago, um, but given the fact that obviously you know he's having a Cy Young caliber season in his free agent year, gives you a little bit of hesitation playing for a contract, but also playing for a contract and walking five per nine, that's a little difficult to swallow. And, like, in the right context, I think it could fit. But if you're going to, you know, coming off of a Cy Young, if you're going to give him a fat contract and tell him, hey, um, we're going to need you to, you know, be at least SP SP 2 SP one would be nice. I feel like it's kind of falling into the same traps that this rotation is already in. And, Jake, as you pointed out, the injury concerns, which again, are already littered all over this pitching staff already. Um, So just given the current makeup, like if you could make a move for Blake Snell and know that you still have two other pitchers above him, like basically that he's a high-end SP3, yeah, love it. But if you're making a move for him and you're relying on him to be a horse, no, I hate it.
1: Yeah, that's the craziest thing about this, like... In 15 years, if we are all at bar trivia together, somebody is going to ask us, like, who is the first major league pitcher to win, you know, Cy Young in each league or something like that before the age of 30? And Blake Snell is going to be the answer. Like, we're talking about a two-time Cy Young winner before the age of 30 who were all both like, uh, I don't. I don't really want any part of this guy. It's kind of crazy. How many other people can say that? I mean, this dude is decorated uh, from a baseball standpoint, and we're just kind of avoiding him like the plague.
0: we watched him pitch um, enough that it, it's a grind. I mean, he goes five and throws 100 pitches all the time, and he's just an escape artist, and he happened to be obviously on a heater for the last three or four months that you, you don't see many of these. Uh, I mean, you stack up those four months against just about anything in history, and he's he's up there with the ERA and the the, the strikeouts and everything. But five walks per nine, he's going to run away with the Cy Young, and he has not been durable. As you said, um, I just don't think this is a guy that's going to age well in his 30s. Um, and if they, if they do lose out on Yamamoto or Nola... I would rather go the trade route because there are a lot of pitchers who are going to be free agents in 2025 who have a year left on their contract. Um, Some of those uh, prospects we were talking about last week might be interesting to move. I'd rather go that direction.
1: Yeah, I'm in complete agreement there. Um, Let's talk about the SP2 spot. So uh, a guy who is incredibly durable is Aaron Nola. This would be my dream scenario target for the SP2 spot for the Red Sox. Um, Part of the reason why is the durability Um, over, you know, the last, what is it, uh, seven seasons dating back to 2017. He's thrown 1,233 innings over that time to a 3.63 ERA and 30 career F4 um, just during that span. So he's been... A horse and he's been elite over many of those years. He doesn't walk a lot of batters. Um, his career walk rate is 2.35. Um, he's solid. He's really solid. And I think that the Red Sox badly need that stability. So I would actually give out pretty much identical contracts um, to NOLA and Yamamoto, if it was up to me, if I was the GM of the Red Sox, um, I would give both these guys 30 million bucks per year, or whatever it takes to get it done, you know, between 30 and 35, and then have that be the top of my rotation moving forward. That would be the first two things that I would do. Um, But obviously, it's not (laughs) a surefire thing to be able to land two of the top uh starting pitchers there. So, let's uh let's start with you Keaton. I mean, is is Nola your clear number 2 target as well and do you think it's realistic that the Red Sox could get both of these guys?
2: Yes. I think with the money they have coming off, which again, they've reset, so it really isn't isn't and shouldn't be an issue, but the fact is they've got plenty of room to play with uh and shouldn't be afraid to go over and given the opportunity to lock two guys up like that the interesting piece is though like the similar um the player comps for him are just really really interesting so we got um this is of course some of my good friends Porek uh Kevin Gaussman signing a five-year deal at age 30 um stuff pretty similar Luis Castillo five-year deal at age 29. Similar stuff. Carlos Rodon, uh, though not um, with the, the the length of history, um, was more of a recency bias when he signed, but a six year deal at age 30. Marcus Stroman, a three year deal at age 30. All of those guys signed uh, with an AAV at about 24. Um, Gaussman, in particular, uh, Gaussman and Casillo, I think, are the two easiest comps there five year 110 for Gaussman; five year 108 for Castillo That's 22 AAV and 21 and a half AAV. Um I mean just given the fact that I think we're expecting uh just pre-agency in general to be a bit of a doozy um Probably get closer to that but I think It wouldn't take a 30 AAV for NOLA um but like a five and 27, five and 28, I would in a heartbeat for sure to lock that up because it just, it is such a relief to lock down the top of the rotation and then just not have to worry about it. And know you've got two guys that are going to go out there and just be nasty every single time. And you're going to have a chance to win. And not only just that, just to have the reliability of they're going to be there and, it's just going to be a very strong outing and you're going to have a chance to win the baseball game. Especially after the last four plus years of the pitching staff that we've been through, it has just been so painful to watch. They really have to like aggressively address it, which if we are to believe what is coming out of Stan Kennedy's mouth, which, I mean, they did say this last offseason and they didn't address it, but they're saying it again. If they are going to go after uh, these guys and go pitching, 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 they kind of have to come away with two of these guys, right? So, yeah, I think Yamamoto's got to be priority number one. Um, and I would make Nola priority, you know, 1A, whatever you want to call it. Uh, try and lend them both. But you really got to get at least one of them.
1: Yeah, I think you you need at least two top-of-the-rotation Type guys, uh, and and they can absolutely afford it. You know, even if they end up paying both these guys thirty million bucks, that's sixty million added to what they already have committed. You're still well below the CBT um, first CBT threshold. But Bob, let's let's move to you here. Um, let's just say that you know the market gets crazy and they can only land one of Yamamoto or Nola. What's the fallback plan? There are some interesting names like Sonny Gray. Um, Jordan Montgomery, uh, Lucas Giolito, Jack Flaherty, and then a little bit further down, you've got some guys like Lorenzen Maeda, Tyler Molly. Like, where do you go if you don't get both of those guys?
0: Well, just please don't put Flaherty in that group. Um, but <laughs> other than that, yeah, I, I mean, those are the two names I have top of my screen right now Sonny Gray and Jordan Montgomery. Um, I think Montgomery is an interesting name. I don't think that you have to break the bank um, with him, you know, being 31 years old and kind of not being in that top tier. I think he's a good SP two target that throws from the left side that, you know, sale has one year left. So that's somebody that could uh, be a left-handed pitcher and maybe be more of like a three year deal or something like that. Maybe something that like Waka went for this past year, Um that throws reliable innings. And that's just to go back to Aaron Nola, you know, the game started, it was, he started 33 games in 2018 and then 34. And then after the, he made all the starts in the short season and then 32, 32, 32. And he had a 446 ERA this past year. And you know, that, that has to be mentioned and his strikeouts have been down a little bit, but just takes the ball and even if things aren't going well early he still finds a way to go six seven innings and montgomery is another guy who's done that the last two years throwing 178 last year and 189 innings this year you know not as high with the strikeouts more of a pitch to contact guy but that's someone that would be okay i mean there's the caveat here that i said last week that i don't care what they spend on shohei otani um let's just say that doesn't happen that's kind of what we're talking about here because it's a different path if they do sign Otani because the following year that's someone you would want in your rotation and you're probably only going out and getting one frontline pitcher so Montgomery and Gray are options and then like I said there's some 2025 guys with a year left you know I don't think Philly's going to want to trade Zach Wheeler but Milwaukee kind of they tend to operate that way with a, a smaller payroll. And Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff are both going to be free agents the year after. Um, and I think you have to at least check in on those guys. Of course, they would cost a ton. But, you know, if it, there's only so many names that, that sound... You, you mentioned how quickly that list got ugly. You know, there's yeah, it eight names that you'd fast. be happy with. So it's hard to think that you're going to get two of them as much as I would love that and I think that they should break the bank for pitching, you know, you have to have fallback options and, you know, I think Montgomery would be okay as a, as a two, he in in sale as the two or three. Um, and then otherwise I think you have to.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Bob. Um, If the Red Sox aren't going to land Nola as that second pitcher, to me it's just a very clear Montgomery is the next best guy. Um, I think the other guy I like there would be Giolito, even though he's been a little bit enigmatic, a little bit up and down. um, But I like his stuff. Uh, Sonny Gray, the body just scares me a little bit, being a little bit more of a slight guy. So I'm a little bit unsure about that.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, he held up this year, but before that, it's a bit of an ugly track record. You know, he's usually on the aisle once or twice a year.
1: Yeah, and let me just say, um, I don't want anything to do with Flaherty. I just, I don't even know why I mentioned him. I'm with you there. The
0: big Orioles uh, acquisition, and he was in the pen within three weeks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. All right, so um, for SP3, if. You know, we both agree. We all three agree that we uh, should go out and get two anchors for the staff. That would leave Chris Sale as your SP three, um, getting paid twenty five point six million in his final year of the contract. Uh, I think I would feel pretty good about Chris Sale as an SP three, though, because as we've said on this show a lot of times, the skills are intact for him. The only thing that's risky is obviously, you know, the durability concerns, but. I mean, if you have a high upside, essentially an SP1 upside, SP3, that's like a pretty good place to be.
0: Yeah, Chris Sale gave up um, more than three runs twice after April. So he was he sucked in April. There's no doubt about that and you cannot rely on him for more than 100 innings. He threw 102 and two-thirds this year. That's what you got to expect. But Bayo can be a three, and Sale can be a two or a three for 100 innings. Um, You just need to have the depth behind it, and they kind of have that, but the depth behind it can't be your number two or number three like it was this year.
1: And there's a non-zero chance Sale comes in and just stays healthy and pitches his ass off. Like, that's it's obviously yeah. an outside possibility, but there's that possibility that you end up having like a true three-headed monster at the top of your rotation if you do go yeah. out and spend. So um, he's obviously pitching for his last contract, whatever he's going to get. Um, let's move on to SP4, though, because... Well, I got a, I got a question for you guys. Oh, Given okay.
2: the fact that... Um... Chris Sale has garnered some trade interest the last couple of trade deadlines. Do you think that there is a chance that Chris Sale would get traded this offseason and not even be in the plans for the rotation in 2024? Yeah, it's it's how much
0: do you have to pay, right? And if you're trying to clear out salary to sign two starting pitchers, and I mean, we've there are other ways to clear salary with arbitration guys. And then there's the all right is Sale okay for fifteen million? We'll pay ten, maybe. Um, I don't see anybody taking twenty six million.
1: I would hate that. I really hate the idea of trading Chris Sale because we mentioned it. I mean, the starting pitching market. There's a few good options, you know, and Chris Sale can be as good as most of the guys towards the top of that list. For limited innings and he's in a contract year right here so I, I, I hate the idea of trading him if you want to compete
0: right I mean we have to know what the other six moves are um, to go along with that but I think it's unlikely I think the best chance that they had to move him was at a year and a half ago at the trade deadline <laughs> where they had kind of a bailout there but you know yeah, Perhaps they just felt it was, uh, you know, a bad clubhouse move to move sale at that point. Um, possibly to dissuade people from, from signing here if they're just going to get dealt a couple of years later. I, I don't know. I'm speculating, but I feel like that was the best chance of doing it. But I, I it's not impossible.
1: Can I just stop hearing about cutting salary, though? Especially at a point where, like, the Red Sox... Are gonna have essentially a hundred million bucks to spend. Like, even with the sale money, they don't need to cut any salary to add two aces to this team. That's ridiculous to to, to put a
0: hundred million a year at Shohei Otani.
2: <laughs> what are they gonna do with that financial flexibility banner they got? Where All are right. they gonna hang it?
1: Let, let me just say this. In Bob's dream scenario of getting Shohei Otani. Yes, we can then trade Chris Sale. Fine. Okay. Yep. That's, I'm there. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, I'm there with you, um, Keaton. Moving on to SP four, though Brian Bayo as an SP four would be pretty damn sexy. Um, and if if Bayo's your four, I feel like your rotation is pretty nasty. So, can you talk about what that would mean for this team in terms of <laughs> Bayo being? the most luxurious of four starting pitchers with the ability to kind of take that next step and get up to potentially like the two or three level starting pitcher.
2: Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, that's exactly where I was going to go with this. I mean, he, he took a step forward this year. Um, He has the ceiling of an SP two and it, it seems more and more realistic by By the start, by the day, whatever kind of metric you want to use there. Um, He looked great this year across those 28 starts. Um, I guess if you can make sure you line up every single one of his starts being at night, he might be a vampire. That was a weird-ass night-day split we had going on there. I have confidence they will figure that out, though. That just seems weird. Uh, There's those weird kind of in-season coincidences. But... um, he looks so good in a lot of starts this year, kind of how we saw him finish the season last year. Uh, he kept that momentum going, had a really great season this year, uh, took a step forward, can take another step forward again next year. And I think um, a realistic ceiling as an SP 2 is very, very achievable. And so if you have a young guy going into his age 25 season um, listed as the fourth Starting option in your rotation with a ceiling of an SP two, yeah, your 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 rotation is loaded, and now you just need to keep them healthy, because um, certainly one through four is going to go out there, and you're going to have a chance to win every single game regardless of what your offense is doing or r- offense and defense are doing. Uh, you're going to have a chance to win those games, and Bayo continuing to continuing to develop, um, adding pitches and working on his pitch mix was really fun to see. And the success that he had uh, with that development this year. So it all seems extremely realistic and more so that he can reach that SP2 ceiling. We kind of were really hoping he was going to have after the the little little taste we got last season. Um, and if you're, if you're locking that kind of talent in, as your number four, yeah, you're in a really good spot.
1: So going on to that point, I mean, Bob, what does he need to do to get to that sort of SP2, SP3 level of consistency? Like what needs to happen in his game over this off season?
0: I think it's just finding a reliable third pitch that he can strike out right-handers with. Um I think Keaton nailed a lot of this. You know, his kind of the one metric that you'd want to see jump a little bit is the the strikeout rate. He had 7.5 per 9 this year. You know, his ERA at 424, a little bit misleading because he got bombed on his two starts to end the year, and he's probably running out of gas. He's the only guy that was out there taking the ball every fifth or sixth game the whole year. Um, You know, you'd like to see him find... A pitch, but I think that he worked with Pedro last offseason and made strides. He'll do similar things this year. He's 24. You know, it's just, it's so easy to forget that because he's now pitched one and a half full seasons with the team. Um, but like I said, you know, the 424 ERA, I think it's a little bit misleading. He was reliable, he was p- pitching deep into games, and he's on a good track innings wise. You know, you, you, you combine his minor league stats, he threw 153 innings in 2022 he threw 163 innings in 2023 uh counting the one minor league start that he had so that's a good track to be past 170 and get to 180 by the time he's 26 um you know outside of that minor forearm scare earlier in the year he's held up well they've rode him and um yeah i mean his sp4 of course um and he'll probably bump up to sp3 the year after
2: yeah. How do you feel if they don't land two, like we really hope, and sales are two, bails your three, going into next year? Do you still feel relatively confident in the, the rotation, or are you thinking they still need to find a way to work a trade-in season to add something? Bruh,
0: I think that's like, I hate to say it, I think that's the most likely scenario, and I'm okay with it. Yeah if they land that top guy i mean this is a pipe dream that we're talking about here getting two frontline guys and that's good we should have that because they've screwed us the last couple of years in terms of (laughs) what we've watched on the mound i'm not saying we shouldn't be looking for this they should overcompensate and have reliable arms that don't walk guys and pitch deep into games because this is bullshit (laughs) but But if they um, don't
1: if they don't add two frontline twos I feel like they at least need to add somebody else of like the quality of yeah in that a range. sale or a bail. Like I think that's where like the Mon- Montgomery or the Gray type guys come in. You know, I-, I don't know if they can add one top line guy and then go out and backfill with like more of those four or five types.
0: Yeah.
2: No, I what
1: uh, what route do they
2: take if because obviously. Nola Yamamoto will be sought after
1: talents this offseason. What we'll if they whiff on both? Where do they go? M- Montgomery for me is the clear, clear third option there.
0: I'm trading for an ace, um, and Woody- signing a Montgomery. Yeah, no, I mean Woodruff is ideal. I hate that he's having a sh- a shoulder problems again for the second time this year because he's my guy, and I would, <laughs> I would go. Uh, over the top to trade for Woodruff.
1: I love um, Woodruff. He's around the zone such constantly, a horse,
0: but just two shoulder injuries this year scares me, um, which sucks.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's great. Um. All right. So obviously we've agreed a lot throughout this that we need you know two two front line guys Sale and Bayo as the third and fourth would be great. But SP five, I'm sure that we're gonna have some disagreements. So there's a lot that we can look at for this spot. It could be Hauk, uh, who has pitched well at times. Keaton, that's your boy. It could be Whitlock, Bob, that's your boy. Uh, who that's correct. You you like his his stuff in that starter's role. Um, for me, I would throw both Hauk and Whitlock in the pen, and I would go out and sign a fifth starter. Guy who I like is uh, Old Man Hunjin Rayu, lefty. I think you can get something done with him for relatively cheap, um, but let's let's go ahead and, and start with you, Bob, with the the SP five. Where would you go with this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to stay consistent with this, right? I mean, you've asked me a few times this year, and I think Garrett Whitlock's a starter. Um, I think that there just needs to be depth. I think you probably need to bring in a guy, whether that's for you or someone in that range, and have. Whitlock and Cutter Crawford as options you know you're going seven deep at that point but the top of the rotation looks a lot better and and that's okay um so I'm, I'm going with Whitlock but not by himself you know I, I I think this is probably the last year that I can come in with that take and I might be crazy um but you know they've signed him to that extension and it's cheap enough that it's fine with whichever role he ends up in. Um, But I would like to see them give him one more chance, at least to be uh, someone competing for that spot as the fifth starter in March, kind of with the same way that they stretched out Hauk and and had all those guys kind of competing as starting pitchers in the preseason. And then Hauk ended up keeping that role the whole year, which I would not have bet on.
1: Keaton, why is Bob wrong? I'm no not. That's why. Ooh. Okay. What is this? Yeah. Are you are you <laughs> switching? Are you switching from Hauk to Whitlock here?
2: I am. Um, oh my God. Oh my goodness. I I know. I. You've seen enough. I wish I could. I I have, and uh, I mean, of course, obviously, he ended with that high note against Baltimore. Uh, Was a six shutout, so yeah, that's it's a good way to go. Um, But yeah, I really think that he can thrive in that Andrew Miller role, and I think um, I guess the only thing that I really feel like would hold that back is if Whitlock can stay healthy enough to do it in the rotation, which he hasn't been able to yet. So. If they they actually may need him to stay stretched out and be a starter because uh, Whitlock just may not be able to to do it for an entire season, uh, which I think would be the only thing that would kind of hold it back. But I think um, Hawk is better in that kind of multi inning swing reliever role, um, guy that can come in in the seventh and be a bridge to a closer in a tight game, um, or come in in the fifth and get a chunk to, to keep things close uh, as a bridge to your more natural setup guys. Uh, or in a pinch, if a closer's out, close out a game. Um, and be that super Andrew Miller 2.0 guy. We've seen him be really, really good in that role. Um, and if they they believe that Whitlock can be a starter, which, as Bob said, feels like they, they do, and that's the case, um, I'm okay... Trying to get him healthy for a season to see what that looks like. Because now we've seen um, Tanner half do it for a full season. Um, and it was inconsistent. Kind of just how things have been previously. Um, we saw him have success when uh, he did exactly what I wanted him to. And throw that splitter, mix his pitches more. Make it seem like he has four pitches, get good uses out of them. He had really good success, but um, it's just not something he relied on consistently throughout the season, and he had inconsistent results. So um, he wants to stay with the pitches that he's most comfortable with, which is totally fine. Uh, but that the, the pitches he's most comfortable throwing most often don't make him a starting pitcher, they make him a reliever. So um, if they want to have him have the most impact that he can for the roster, it's as a reliever. So I'd move him to the pen, make him that super utility type reliever and just do what you can to get Whitlock through a season healthy as a starting pitcher.
1: Okay, before we tie the SP5 up, um, I'm going to give you guys my preference for the SP5 and then I just want to hear kind of how you would rank your preferences. So for me, my first preference would be to sign a free agent, you know, somebody like Kenta Maeda or Hunjin Ryu or, you know, somebody in that range. My second preference, if they don't do that, if they're staying internal, I would start Cutter Crawford as the SP5. My third option would be Hauk as the SP5. And my fourth and final option would be Whitlock as the SP5. I really want to see Whitlock in the bullpen. Long term, so let's go with you, Keaton. How would you rank the options for SP five?
2: Interesting that you're
1: now the the leader of the Hauk for Starter Fan Club. I just think it's durability. You know, like he's he can at least be out there, and that's something that Whitlock hasn't shown.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That is true which, uh, as we have talked about through uh, this entire podcast, rather important for that position. Um, you know, I do like that option of a Kensan Maeda, Hyunjin Ryu type guy. Um, I do like that a lot. And then, honestly, having both Whitlock and Hauk in the bullpen with those roles is, is mighty fun to think about. Because, uh, obviously, we've seen them both be very very good there uh, individually at different times um, so I think, I think I'm with you there I think that's probably my first um, I kind I think I get where you're going with Carter Crawford because if he's not your fifth starter what do you do with him um, but I think my answer is I would rather suck it up um, and just figure it out honestly maybe trade him uh, package him up with something else. I mean, if, if if the roster is playing out with all of these other moves, then I think he becomes dispensable. Um, so I I would think I'm going to go free agent
1: Whitlock, Hauk, Crawford, other. Interesting, interesting. How about you, Bob?
0: I would go Whitlock, Crawford. Uh, free agent Hauk. I do think Hauk, as we said, is a could be a trade candidate. He has value. Um, it's easy to forget, though, that just how good he was in the bullpen in 2022. You know, he, he went to the pen, and from May 15th till the end of the season, his ERA was 149. He was absolutely dominant. He didn't have any blow up outings. He didn't give up more than a run the rest of the year after May 15th. So I just I want him in that role, or I think that he could be valuable as a trade. Uh, so i go Whitlock and Crawford. I mean, th- this the bottom of that list, those SP5 free agents you're talking about, these guys suck. Uh, and, and I think that, I mean, I, I'm not even going to list off the names once you go 20 starting pitchers down. And I just think internally they, they have better names than that here.
1: I mean, I'm 100% fine if they run into next season with Cutter Crawford as, as your five. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine with me. I think he's shown enough to do that. But let's let's Ballast get to the... Keiko is
2: still pitching?
1: Yes, he actually yeah. had a little bit of a resurgent
0: uh So is Julio yeah. Teheron.
1: Yeah, well I know
2: that. Well he came yeah, I was following him. Sadly, one of my fantasy teams was in a situation where um he was rostered. So very well Great. aware.
1: Yeah, that's not a good situation.
2: <laughs> no. It wasn't.
1: We're going to skip over depth and move right to the bullpen here. Um, This is a a unit that I think is pretty well locked up. Um, This is how I have it. I know that you guys probably have it a little bit differently. Um, Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin, I have Garrett Whitlock in there, Tanner Houck, or Nick Pavetta. I think one of those two guys gets traded. Uh, John Schreiber in his first arb arb year. And then Brendan Bernardino, I have Cutter Crawford as the long man, and Josh Winkowski in there as well. Um, Let's start with you, Bob. How would you craft your pen next year?
0: Yeah, I would go with, uh, you know, you got Jansen, Martin, Hauk, Schreiber, Winkowski. I think that's a really good first five, but of course those are all righties. So you'd have to bring in a lefty, and I'm not positive, you know, what that name is yet. I think that someone, you know, from the minor leagues you could see come up. You know, Brian Mata, or maybe there's someone in a Rule 5 type of thing that you could see. Um, Crawford I would put in there as well. I think Bernardino... Would be in the mix of lefties, you know, year to year. I I don't know that I trust Bernardino long-term. I think that that's probably the one spot that they need to bring in is is if they can get kind of like a power lefty type of arm um, in the bullpen, I would add that. Otherwise, I think it's pretty set. Uh, I left out Nick Pavetta because now is the perfect time to trade his ass, in my opinion. You know, people are talking about adding a year. Um, You know, let's sign him to an extension. Sell high on Nick Pavetta. Somebody watched the last three months of the year and saw what he can do in the bullpen and will give something for him and they should take it.
1: Yeah, and he's in his final RB year and he's going to make somewhere between 6 and $7 million bucks, which is way too expensive for a guy who you're planning to use in your bullpen, I think, especially because, I don't know, it feels like a luxury when you have... So many other guys who can do that role who are like pre-arbitration, but I don't know. What's your take? I, I mean, I know Keaton
0: loves him.
2: Yeah, I think I'm kind of in line here with uh, with Bob, like the top half of that. There, Jensen, Martin, Whitlock, Hauk, Schreiber, love it. Poop Fetta, get him out of there. Um, we need to bring a lefty in. But there's actually, you know, surprisingly a couple options um, on the free agent market that are relatively interesting. Um, I know we had a real, real bad last, I don't know, three weeks but uh, to the season. But Will Smith is uh, a potential option. Um, wouldn't mind him on like a one, two year deal. Uh, he has been extremely effective. For just about every team in the majors, it seems like um, as that nice lefty reliever, uh, Josh Hader. Though that I imagine um, he's going to go yeah. be a, a highly paid closer for somebody uh, somewhere else. And I, I think uh, the Red Sox, if they're going to spend money on pitching, it's it's not on a reliever because um, I think they they have the real a real good shape here already, but needing to add a lefty definitely does make sense something that is interesting though is coming off of just a whole buttload of injuries um drew pomerantz coming back trying to make a comeback here um but the last two seasons he was on the mound um sub two era for san diego um though i'm not Entirely sure what shape his arm is in after uh, basically having not pitched um, in a while here, um, but just kind of another interesting lefty that uh,
1: should we bring Anderson Espinosa back too? Yeah, why not?
2: <laughs> I just, I mean, yeah, I don't. Given the shape of his arm and basically, I mean, he has pitched two years basically, but it. If they're looking for if it's in any kind of shape, it'd be interesting. But I don't know. But I, I think they there are options there to go externally for a lefty that are interesting. Um, your boy uh, Brad Hand. That's the one. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, that I, I think that's the way that they go. But that the top half of that bullpen is. A real, real strong start. So I think there's not a ton that they need to do, but nice lefty piece, even better shape. I like it.
1: Bob, do you think we can go one podcast without Keaton mentioning a former Rockies draft pick?
0: Who, who are we referencing here?
1: Last week it was Ryan McMahon. This week it was Drew Pomerantz. Oh, yeah. It's always hey, man,
2: you want to go back to the days where we talked about Scooter Jeanette every week?
1: <laughs> no. Those are well, not,
2: not. He was mentioned highlights.
0: on every podcast you went on, whether it was the Red Sox or not.
2: For like three straight years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you go to the
0: game where you hit four home runs or something?
1: I no. did not. <laughs> I just team. love me some scooter. Oh, it was it was Jake? Oh, well, I'm it sorry. Was it was both, both of us. Of yeah. We both loved right. him. We yeah, were in both agreement both. that scooter. Yeah, I just
2: Jeanette
0: remember was... him being brought up in all of scooter our uh, was Slack the threads.
1: Solution to all our problems. Yeah. yeah. Well, it turned out scooter Jeanette was the solution to no one's problems. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um all right let's move on from from this the the bullpen is in good shape so we think minor tweaks there um but we did get a bunch of listener questions and we are going a little bit long here and i gotta get to bed so um let's start off with patty od has a question uh well he says it's not sure if it's a question he says i'm old i went to tim wakefield's first start at fenway in 1995 against the mariners he pitched a 10-inning complete game. It was amazing to see his pitch dance so slowly compared to Bobby Ayala's fastball on the Mariners. I'd never seen anything like Wakefield's knuckleball, and who knew it would start a 17-year career with the Sox. I feel like Wake was a bridge between, of sorts between the curse of the Bambino Sox in the 90s and the winning days of the 21st century. He embraced the city. We embraced him back. He felt like one of us even when he was from Florida. He stayed in our lives at Nesson and he was one of the great Boston athlete philanthropists. I don't usually get as impacted as the passing of at the passing of people I don't know, but Wakefield's death hit me hard. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts or impressions or memories of his career. Um, yeah, so we covered that at the top of the show. But yeah, that was that's great stuff, um, from, from Patty O. D. There. Um, we we're absolutely in agreement there with everything that he said it's really well put uh and he adds to this why is kurt schilling such a dumbass <laughs> and i think we all agree kurt schilling is the worst um and he he asks if we'll be doing the podcast this off season. so and thanks us for a great year with the podcast so thank you for listening and uh yeah we'll be coming to you at least monthly uh, during the off season as well. Um, but Patty sent
0: in nothing but, but fire questions for months. So we appreciate you listening and everything that, that he sends in.
1: Yeah. yeah. He's been the best. Um, he has one more too. He said, I'd like to end the season on a positive note. So aside from turning the page on bloom, what were some bright spots this season? And is Alex Cora the right person for the job in 2024? Um, Just hitting on that first thing, when I think about bright spots about this season, two people really come to mind. And it's Brendan Bernardino and it's Pablo Reyes coming out of nowhere. And those are the guys who I will remember for the 2023 season. Because I don't think there was a ton to hang your hat on. But those two guys emerging um, in sort of the story, those are the things that I'll remember.
0: Yeah. um, God, it's tough because nothing good happened for like seven weeks at the end of the year. And it's so hard to to think back. I mean, parts of the year, you know, leading it when they when they fought through that three man rotation situation and and went on such a run in July and put themselves in a good spot. um, You know, I think Adam Duvall, some of his huge hits and some of the heaters that he went on, especially early in the season, really gave hope at the beginning. Um, And he ended up playing 92 games, but he hit 21 home runs. I mean, he was a bright spot. I don't think he'll be back next year. And the other one, I agree with Bernardino um, and Reyes. Those are great stories. But Jaron Duran is the other one for me because I think, you know, he had a shot at the batting title before he got hurt. You know, he was hitting 315 uh, and on pace to kind of be in that mix. And, you know, I think Seager ended up qualifying and running away with it. But, you know, Duran just the 24 steals that he had in 100 games. I mean, I think if he can be out there for a full season next year, he can hit 280 and steal 30, 40 bags. He had 34 doubles this year. You know, I I think that his breakout was a positive that I would take that, you know, when he got hurt, that's kind of uh, around the time that things went downhill. Um, But, you know, he won a lot of games for them this year.
2: Yeah, it feels like a lifetime ago, but the, the first thing that came to mind, like trying to think of positives or, or you know fun pieces from the season was the first week of the year when Duvall came out on a tear hitting like 550, 10 bombs it was like the AL player of the week and then like immediately, immediately got hurt and it was quite a bummer. But that yeah. first you know seven to 10 games was an absurd pace and it was so much fun to watch and it made you think that uh, had, he, had he stuck around uh, for more than the first week of the season before getting hurt, that the team might have actually gone somewhere. Um, of course, given the, the next 150 games, probably not, but it was very fun right out of the gate.
1: Yeah, I'll just add a couple more uh, to the list that I was I was thinking about um, while you guys were talking, but uh, the two Dodgers who came over um, and Justin Turner and Chris Martin just really lived up to the billing, um, especially Justin Turner with all the timely hits that I know, Bob, you've mentioned them on this show a lot of times. You just felt comfortable with him coming up in big spots, and he really exceeded expectations. And then Chris Martin was everything we could have possibly hoped um, that he could have been. Um, you know, Kenley was great too as another Dodger, but Martin especially I think just – Locked yeah. it down, and there was just that epic stretch where he was basically unhittable towards the end of the season. I'd like to
0: go back and, and see the last time that it, it's got to be Koji, right? A 1.05 ERA from someone that threw 50 or more innings on this team.
1: Oh, That's yeah, a huge it's definitely Koji.
0: Sample size, yeah. I mean, yeah. nothing's topping that Koji year. And I've written articles recently about that year because I think it's still underappreciated. But, you know, if, if they had been a playoff team, Martin would have been. We'd be talking about him in a Koji kind of way, potentially.
1: That Koji year was my all time Red Sox ever uh, relief pitcher season. So, yeah, yeah. I, it has to I, be. I agree. I just, uh, my favorite is
2: the, the gif of him giving high fives in the dugout and then slapping
1: <laughs> the dude in the face. <laughs> That's the best. That is so funny every time. Still funny every time I watch it with the high pitched uh, voice. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the last thing he Patty O'Dea said was, uh, is Cora the right person for the job in 2024? Do we all agree that he's still the right guy?
2: Yeah, I like, I mean, this year was really frustrating, but the team had glaring holes, and I feel like he, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about uh, his struggles with the bullpen, but he's he's quite good. At a lot of the other aspects of it and I think the holes in the roster maybe made things seem a little bit more difficult but one of the things that I really liked coming from Cora this year was he was right there with the players in being vocal about what they wanted from the front office to help this team win games they wanted to win games this year just like I mean previous years they, they did too but they weren't like they were st- st- staying true to the plan, and not trying to you know ruffle any feathers here. But they, they that kind of went out the window this year, and they were very vocal leading up to the trade deadline about here are the holes in the roster, and we'd love to get some help. And he was right out there leading the charge with them, and he has the players backs and and supports them. And um, wish he could handle the bullpen a little bit better, but he's he's still a very good manager, so I can't say. He's not the right man for the job, given the holes in the rosters that he's had to manage with the past two years. Um, the fact that they were, you know, close to five hundred uh, is probably due to him, and you know things weren't worse. So I, I think I'm still on board with with Cora as a manager.
0: Yeah, I am, but I, I think it's a huge year in 2024. Kind of make or break. I that was. Pretty embarrassing down the stretch that they, they somehow went under 78 and a half wins. They had to really shit themselves for over a month at the end.
1: What was it, and, like 6-23, and 23, Bob? Yeah,
0: and I mean, I just think that, like, I don't know. He's, that has to count for something. You know, they, they weren't, like I say, not playing hard, but there just wasn't any spark. And there were just so many lifeless performances and shutouts and games that they would just go in order and seven pitches, like... In the first inning, and it was just like, I, these guys don't look like they're up for the game. And I know that that's kind of how it is when you're playing out the string on an uh, unimpressive season. But I don't know. It, it rubbed me the wrong way down the stretch. And, um, you know, he's going to have to find somebody that can work with him as a general manager. Um, because he was, as Keaton said, kind of uh, a little bit outspoken, wearing the underdog shirt, all of that stuff. I don't know. I they're gonna have to find somebody that uh that aligns with core, and maybe that's an internal candidate. But I'm thinking about that a little bit more. That you know he's gonna be a, it's not a GM pick in their manager next.
1: I think you guys both nailed that extremely well. Uh, both sides of that you know, core discussion, um, and I agree with both of you. So I think you got to look hard at Cora if 2024 isn't good, and they do add to the team, but I'm definitely giving him one more. Jay Lane has the next question. He says, I'm afraid you guys are right in thinking that the Sox might trade. Verdugo, if Duran is going to be the center fielder most days, you're in trouble with three left-handed bats in the outfield. I hate to see it, though, as Verdugo is by far the best defensive player on the team. He's played a gold glove season in right field. Too bad he didn't have the second half season with the bat that he had in the first half, then they couldn't trade him. I think being shafted out and not making the All Star team really discouraged him. Keep up the good columns, Jay Lane.
0: Thanks, Jay.
1: Yeah, appreciate that, Jay. And I, I think that um, you know Verdugo, Bob's been kind of the consistent guy all year that Verdugo was going to finish with the same year that he uh, always finishes with, and unfortunately, Bob ended up being right again uh, about Verdugo do you guys think that it was the confidence thing or you know being just kind of upset about that that led to the poor second half or is this um this just who Verdugo is
0: I think it's who he is if that's going to derail him for an entire half of the season then that would concern me about kind of mental toughness going forward I, I think it's fair. I think it probably for a little bit derailed him, and, but I don't know. It's just 13 homers, 54 RBIs, 264 average. It's a disappointing year at 27.
1: Yeah, it's not good enough.
0: Um, and It's a good point about the three left-handed bats, and Abreu is a left-handed bat. Um, you know, Raphael being a right-hander, I don't know. I would like to see them get more right-handed. I threw Soler out there as a name last week. Someone like that. Someone that can kind of take advantage of the monster. That can be a slugger that they can bring in for a year. And trading Verdugo, I think, is the best route. I think he'll bring you back something. I don't think you're totally selling low on him. He's a fine player. He's a good defensive outfielder. Um, But it's a way uh, for an arbitration guy that they could move a little bit of salary because i do think he'll get a little bit expensive in his final year before being a free agent yeah and i know you don't want me to talk about shedding money but you know it's for to to, to use elsewhere
1: for otani as long as it's, it's for correct. otani right you got that right Or, the, or the two aces um the last one i feel like is really in your wheelhouse keaton um, from tj mcphee he says hey guys a lot of uh, a lot is made out of bloom Taking the worst farm system in baseball to the fifth best farm system in baseball. If that worst farm system in baseball produced big leaguers such as Bayo, Casas, Rafaela, Duran, Crawford, was it really the worst in baseball? And if it was, shouldn't shouldn't our currently highly ranked farm system be expected to produce at least twice as many big leaguer contributors in the coming seasons? Thanks, TJ McPhee.
2: TJ, this was an amazing question and you sent me down an absurd rabbit hole that I was pestering uh, Jake and Bob with text. Pestering everyone in Mississippi about. Yeah. (laughs) The greater Memphis area. (laughs) (laughs) The southern tri-state area. Um, Yeah. uh, I took like a whole two hours out of my work day and and in the blink of an eye realized uh, I should probably get back to work. (laughs) Um, It's good. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I really got kind of consumed here. I was curious um, here now after uh, four years, four draft cycles uh, and international signing cycles, uh, what the the actual makeup of the top prospects looks like for the Red Sox. Um, And it was rather interesting. So by... MLB.com uh, because uh, nobody else has as updated uh, rankings. Uh, so I needed to include uh, Bloom's most recent draft, which MLB.com does fan graphs, Unfortunately, hasn't updated theirs yet to include that. So, uh, MLB.com will be our uh, control source here. Uh, heading into the 2023 season, the Red Sox Farm ranked 11th by uh, MLB.com. And this was kind of the most shocking piece. Of the 30 top prospects, uh, 22 of them were Dombrowski guys. Only eight were Bloom. Now, the Red Sox Farm System, MLB.com, has ranked 16th and nineteen. Of the 30 are bloom guys helped by five uh, of the 2023 draftees there in the top 30. Uh, Noticeably, seven of the top 10 are bloom guys. So it is top heavy bloom guys, but uh, still a significant Dombo presence in the farm there. Um, Obviously, there's... Uh, you know, international signees in particular, it's really tough to judge those because they're 16 years old and even four years later, um, some of them are barely even in the minors. So it's tough to see kind of where the the blip is. So it's, it's maybe worth taking a look like this look, uh, with a grain of salt, but given the, just the emphasis that everybody, um, was just kind of putting on this as like bloom had completely resurrected the, the minor league system, but to see coming into the season that the top 30 was still mostly Dombrowski guys. It was, that seems significant to me that the, uh, the top prospects of the farm systems that are you know being ranked in the top half of the league. Now that everyone's like, Oh, it's resurrected. It, it was all Dombo guys, but bloom was getting the credit for having, uh, you know, risen the farm from the the bottom of the the MLB rankings. There, I thought that was quite interesting. But just given the lag time in development, I know it is kind of like a a bit weird to to put that placement on there. But it seemed seemed like I was expecting more more of a bloom presence there uh, than reality is presenting. So uh, I know uh, Bobby had some thoughts on my wonderful research. I was pestering you with. <laughs> I, I don't know that
0: I had any thoughts on it. I I didn't feel educated enough on the bell curve of how many uh, prospects would still be in your top 30, three, four, five years um, after yeah. leaving the organization, and it's hard for me to have a comparison point. So I needed to take two hours out of my workday to rebut you today, but I didn't have that. Um, <laughs> so and just so much of it with the the J two. Uh, J-15 players, I think they call it now, just, you know, it's hard to know. A lot of these guys are in the system at 16. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is going to be, unfortunately, something that is debated for several years.
1: Yeah, I think it's very complicated and uh, probably worth its own show at some point. So, I think... You guys did a good job of answering that, um, especially you, Keaton. So, thank you for that. Um, and with that, you know, the show is wrapped up. So, hour and a half later, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, rate, review, follow. You can follow Bob at Bob Good 15. You can follow Keaton at The Spoken Keats. You can follow me at Dev Jake. And you can uh, send us in uh, questions at uh, Podcast at gmail.com. So, a we'll hey, great year. Yeah, great. Year. We'll
0: be here, but great
1: season. Yeah, thanks everybody and